Let's, um, let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 28. We're going to continue our study there. And uh, it's the closing chapter of the book of Acts. And some of you thought we would never finish. We actually are finishing today with the book of Acts. I've entitled the message, Vindicated by God. And um, to just bring you up to speed briefly, the Apostle Paul in chapter 21 through 23 was, uh, was arrested, falsely accused for uh, defiling the temple in Ephesus and for causing a riot, neither of which happened. But the Jews were determined to bring disrepute to Paul and at the hands of Romans have his life taken away. And so now we find him all the way in chapter 8. All these, all these events and these trials and these hearings have already taken place. And uh, he has appealed to Caesar, finally, in the, in the uh, face of Agrippa's uh, inquisition. And so he appealed to Caesar. And now in chapter 27, he was aboard a ship and uh, making this, this long journey of some 22, 2,400 miles of sailing uh, to get to Rome. And in the process, they got hit with this major hurricane that we studied last week. And in the midst of this, this terrible hurricane, God met Paul uh, in, in an angel's presence and gave Paul promises and also told Paul that all of these men, because of him, were going to survive. Some 275 men in addition to Paul, 276 altogether, made it safely to shore. They didn't know where even they were landing. It was happening in the early morning hours. Remember that we're still in a, in a hurricane in this text. We've got this, these, these incredibly strong winds, these very high waves. It's in the middle of winter. All these guys have been tossed in the, in the drink, and they had to make their way to, uh, on a shore, you know, that they have no idea whether it's a reef or a sandbar. And we're talking enormous waves uh, in, in a hurricane storm of that kind of magnitude. And so that's where we pick up our text in chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. You know, I just have to say, I just, I love, I love the Bible. I just needed to tell you that because I just thought, I'm so excited just about reading this right now, and I've read it many times. But to read it out loud in your presence and in the presence of God is an honor. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. And when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the hand off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us into his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with supplies that we needed. After three months, we put out to the sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with a figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and the following day, we reached Putieli. There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, 
and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. And when they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our own people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet with Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your fathers when he said through, the, through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. And, and Lord, I'm just asking, make it live, Lord. It's already living and active. The Bible is already alive, but make it alive in our hearts, Father. We ask that you would do that by your Spirit Holy Spirit, we yield our time to you and ask that you would mentor us and teach every one of us, myself included, and that even though I've done my preparation, I have no confidence in that. I put my confidence in you, and I ask that you would fill my mind and my mouth and my heart with your words, that this might be a blessing to every man and woman and young person here this morning. And we ask all these things, praising you and thanking you in advance for your answer, and we pray it in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. This island that these, uh, these sailors landed on with this cargo of, of uh, nothing really at this point but men because all the cargo, all the grain had been thrown overboard. All that, all that really arrived on Malta were, were, were people. And I would guess that the majority of those people were split into two groups of prisoners and guards and a small crew that was running the ship. That's all that was there. And so we find that these, these men are, are thrown up on this island in the midst of this hurricane force storm, and, uh, and they discover this place is called Malta. Malta actually means refuge, which was a, an appropriate name uh, for Malta because so many ships wrecked on that island uh, because it was just there were these outer bank shoals uh, that many ships would founder on and then would break apart on just like uh, this particular ship that, that Paul was on. 
And so to give you an idea of the size of the island, it's just a little bit bigger than our own island of Ni'ihau. Now, we're told about the islanders uh, and how unusual their kindness was. And I thought, well, isn't this the way all islanders are? You know, it's certainly the way Kauai is. I mean, uh, we're known for our aloha spirit. We're known for the, uh, just a, a loving open-heartedness here in the island, and, uh, and that's appropriate, and, uh, and I want to continue to encourage that. I think that we're positioned as a church because of Jesus Christ to even accentuate that even more because we're not giving from uh, just our own capacity, but we're giving through the power of the Holy Spirit and God to this island, and so random acts of kindness and divine appointments are just common for the believer. They should be, common experiences that we're giving, we're loving, we're serving, we're kind, we're generous. Uh, the church should be noted for that. And the thing I want to share with you is that I keep hearing stories regularly. I, I don't know. I don't know if I've told you this. I probably have. But I, I really like to sometimes be kind of undercover on the island. And it's a little hard because of our, of our television program. So a lot of people recognize me. But every once in a while, somebody will, I'll be talking to somebody and they'll see that, you know, there's some connection and, and I'll be saying something about some spiritual thing and uh, witnessing or sharing. And they say, you know what? I have a friend that goes to church. And I said, well, where do they go? And they go to Calvary Chapel, Kauai. And I said, really? Um, I've heard that's a good church. You know, I'm sitting there saying that. And, um, and I said, I, the, the pastor is great. He's so nice. And the, no, I, don't, I don't really don't say that. Uh, but, you know, I, I kind of like to just hear before I share who I am, and a lot of times I don't even share who I am. They come to church later and they say, you should have told me you were the pastor. I might have said something I shouldn't have, you know. And, uh, but it's just so neat to be able to hear the testimony about what God is doing in your life and the influence you're having. And all I can say is praise the Lord because that's the fruit of the Spirit of God in the people of God touching the world that he loves. And so this island was known for the same kind of kindness, but these people weren't believers. But they had this uh, philanthropic spirit. In fact, that's actually the word that's used here for kindness is philanthropy. That's the Greek word. Uh, and so we have this, this concept of benevolent spirit, this giving kindness of the people uh, of Malta, the Maltese people. And so they, in the early morning, you know, there are guys out there fishing, undoubtedly, and there are people that live on, you know, uh, with an ocean view, just like some people here, you know, we get an ocean view, we can almost, I can see it from here, and it's just, it's awesome to be able to see the ocean. But as this ship was foundering on these shoals, uh, there were people that saw it. And what do they do? You know, uh, they got their friends together. They recognized this was a crisis. And, uh, and they saw people swimming and trying to make their way on planks and boards or whatever they could get a hold of to, to get to land. And they met them on the beach. Now remember, we got 276 men who, who for 14 days were in terrible crisis. They were so full of fear that they hadn't even eaten until that morning uh, when Paul told them to eat. And, uh, you know, they were, they were exhausted. They were drenched. It was winter. It was freezing cold. And, uh, and they had just dragged themselves up on the beach through some heavy storm surf. And I guarantee you, not one of these guys were saying, hey, I got a great barrel on that last one. Can we go out again? You know, I mean, these guys were just glad to be on shore, dragging themselves to shore and just like kissing the land, you know, kissing the beach. And so these Maltese people come down and they, uh, and they build a fire for these men. I mean, how many, how many fires do you have to have for 276 guys to warm up? I mean, that's a, either multiple fires or a very large one. And it says that these Maltese uh, islanders welcomed all of these men. 
And I couldn't help but think of the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus tells this great story. I'm not going to tell the story, but he tells this great story about uh, a man that was traveling, a Jewish man that was traveling to worship in, in Jerusalem, and on the way uh, was, was jumped by robbers. And priests and all kinds of religious people just passed this guy by in his, in his state of need. And a Samaritan who was considered a half-breed, not even really, you know, close to the love of God, not to the heart of God, kind of an outsider, an outcast, never be in the kingdom of God from a Jewish perspective, was the one that came and rescued this man and paid for his, uh, his service and for his help and his, his remedy. And I just told you I wasn't going to tell you the story, and I just told you the story. Okay. So there's this, uh, this compassion of these islanders. And it's just a beautiful thing that they're, and they know they're dealing with prisoners because these guys have shackles on. They still got, you know, they still have the, uh, probably some of them got unlocked, but they probably still had, uh, you know, the, the bands on and they just had the, the ability to move their hands apart at this point. But th right away, man, this is a prisoner ship. You know, we got guards here. These are Romans. I mean, they, they know the score. And Paul assisted them, the Bible says, in the midst of this to stoke the fire. And he went out and got some brush and picked it up and, uh, uh, and began to serve. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, this is just really convicting to me. I don't know how it strikes you, but Paul has been wrongly accused. He spent two years in prison in Jerusalem. He stood before kings and governors to make his defense, and every time they say he's completely innocent, and then in spite of that, they still hold him because they're just lacking the courage to do what's right because they don't want to ruffle the Jewish leader's feathers. And so then he gets on a ship, and then the, the ship shipwrecks, and he pulls himself up on the beach, and it's not even his game. It's not his show. He's not in charge. I'm telling you, if I were Paul, I think I'd be hard-pressed to want to lift a finger to help anybody. Truth. But Paul doesn't think twice. He immediately starts helping to gather firewood. He's, he's gathering firewood to help, up his, to help warm up his Roman guards who are watching over him. He's helping to warm up the ship captain and the pilot, and his fellow prisoners. This guy just doesn't stop. You know, I'm like, in my mind, I'm saying, Paul, give it a rest. You're making me feel guilty, you know? But he just keeps serving. He's got this servant-hearted spirit. You know what spirit he's got? He's got the spirit of Christ in him. That's the spirit he's got. It's the spirit of God Almighty in a man and, or in a woman, in this case, a man, who has yielded himself to the work of God. And because of it, he knows that he was saved to serve. That's the heart of a believer. We're saved to serve. I like how Jesus put it in, in Mark uh, 10 when he was talking to the disciples on another occasion where they were trying to figure out who was going to be the greatest. And, um, and Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And then he says something remarkable. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't give his extra. He gave it all. Even when he was persecuted, even when he was suffering, even when he was wrongly accused, even when he went to the cross, to the very end, he served. To the very end. And so Paul likewise served. It's really the calling that we have as believers is that uh, we can't just serve when we have extra energy. That's my temptation. I feel like, you know, hey, I'm good to go when I'm rested. I'm good to go when I'm, when I'm, you know, my inbox is empty. I'm good to go when my stuff is done. Now, what do you need? How can I help you? I love you. I want to do whatever I can for you. But catch me on a day where I'm stressed and I've got so much happening and it's like I'm stretched out. I don't even have my own stuff done and it's like, 
don't look at me, don't come talk to me. You know, I mean, I'm not really, I, I don't want you to not come talk to me. Okay, but uh, you get the idea that there's, there's a part of all of us that we're really, really, really nice people and benevolent and philanthropic when we've got time and energy and we're well rested. But what are we like when we're stressed? What are we like when we're wrongly accused? What are we like when we're in the very midst of crisis and it's not over? That's where Paul was. It didn't matter how Paul was, what he was facing or how you caught him or what he was doing or what was going on in his life. He was serving. We're going to find that over and over in this text. It's a great encouragement. And then if, if it wasn't bad enough, everything he's been through, a viper, a snake, a venomous snake, poisonous snake, was in this bundle of sticks that he got, and as he put it on the fire, the snake latched out, grabbed him by the hand, and sunk its fangs in him, depositing this poison, and didn't let go. I mean, it reminds me really of, a, of an eel, not a snake. Usually snakes bite, and they're, you know, that's it. This one would not let go. Sometimes I like to think about not just what the Bible says happened, but also what it doesn't say happened. It's very instructive. Sometimes do that. But I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, I'm fascinated by what Paul didn't do. First of all, he didn't panic and freak out and scream and go like that and shake the snake off and, you know, endanger other people around him. There's a big crowd of guys all, you know, right there. And he could have done that, you know, got the thing off of there and flung it right off on another guy, bite, 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 you know. He didn't, he didn't do that. And he didn't scream or grumble about God. You ever done that? You know, you've been through so much already and then, and then you get hit again and it's like, come on, God, you know, give me, cut me some slack here, you know. I mean, don't you see I'm trying to serve you, I'm trying to serve other people? Is that the reward I get? I'm trying to help with wood? What are you trying to teach me here, you know? Anybody ever been bitten for serving other people? You know, sometimes even Christians bite. Did you know that? You're trying to do good and it's like, you know, and they're just not letting go, you know. We don't want to be people like that, by the way. But sometimes when you serve, even when your motive is right, you're going to get stung, you know? And then what do you do? Well, what Paul did is he just calmly hung that snake over the fire and just dropped it off in the fire, went right back to work. No grumbling, no complaining. I, I, could, I could easily see myself, you know, in, in a, on, on a bad day, thinking to myself, if not saying it verbally, how come I'm doing this? The rest of you guys should be helping and if you had been doing what you guys were supposed to do, namely the Roman guards and all these other people, I wouldn't have had to get up and serve all of you slackers. And because I served you slackers, I got bitten. Of course, nobody here has ever been bitter about ministry or serving or, 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 or you know, trying to do something at home and no one else is helping you and you're trying to get it all done and you just feel this growing sense of love for your family. You know? <laughs> I love when they give me more opportunity to serve, you know. But Paul just had such a great attitude through this whole thing and he just knew it wasn't about people's response or how many people were helping or whether he had enough assistance or whether he got stung for serving. He just kept doing it because that's what Christians do. They are saved to serve. Well, the islanders, when they saw this all unfolding, they, they just immediately assumed that he was a murderer. You know, they saw all these guys with the shackles and chains and the guards and everything, and you can kind of tell a prisoner, you know, I mean, they're, they're just, you know, look like prisoners, you know, especially back in, in those days. I mean, they didn't, they didn't primp these guys up, you know, when they went on a little trip like this. I mean, they were just scraggly and long hair, and, you know, it was just, they were prisoners. And uh, so when, when the Maltese people saw this happen, they thought, 
look, the, he was saved from the sea because one of the things in, in uh, Greek mythology is that if a man was, was truly innocent, uh, one of the ways that the gods could pronounce a judgment if human judgment was an error is that they would pronounce judgment in a, in a, in a deliverance type of manner. Namely, one of the ways that they could be delivered was through a shipwreck. If they survived a shipwreck, that for, for a, 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 a Greek was like an indicator that God was pronouncing innocence on that person. So that's why they say he may have escaped from the sea, but he didn't escape justice. Now, some of your Bibles have it added in a small j. It should be a capital J because this is a Greek god that they're, that they're referencing here. It's dikei uh, or dikii in, in the Greek. And it's the, it's, uh, it's the goddess of justice and vengeance in, in the plethora of, of uh, Greek gods, the daughter of Jupiter. And so they assume that when calamity hits like this, that justice, the Greek god, was getting justice on this man. And they thought, man, definitely this man is a murderer. He's done something terribly wrong. And even though he escaped the sea, he didn't escape justice. You know, this, uh, this is a very uh, dangerous assumption to make, by the way. And all we have to do is point back to Job and his counselors, uh, who had some, some unwarranted and, and erroneous advice. Boy, if you, if you read through the book of Job and, and you don't read the last chapter, you think, well, these guys got a point, you know? Haven't you ever thought that? You know, somebody, they're, they're, you know, they, they, they have a, a, a meltdown financially. Then they lose their job. And then, you know, they have a bad accident. And then their kids run away from home. And then their cat dies. And then their goldfish are, you know, upside down in the bowl. And after a while, you, you put this all together and you're saying, what did they do? You know, they're Christians. How could all these things be happening? I mean, God doesn't treat people like this, does he? You know, and we go through this kind of, this, this little thing of like, maybe they're doing something. Maybe there's some hidden sin in their life. Well, actually, Job's counselors said the same thing. And, and, and there's, a, there's a particular verse I want to note for you in Job 2016 uh, that has uh, a kind of a, a, an application and pertinence in this particular text that we're studying today. In, Acts, uh, in, sorry, in Job 2016, one of his counselors said that uh, the wicked man uh, will suck the poison of serpents and the fangs of an adder will kill him. Isn't that interesting? So, he, you know, these Job's counselors, even though they're followers of Yahweh, have adopted some of the same thought that, that calamity comes on wicked people, not on good people. But here we find Paul going through problem after problem after problem, and he's a godly man. And certainly we know the end of the story with Job is that uh, these things happen to, uh, to highlight and to accentuate the power of God and his capacity to deliver. And certainly he delivered with, uh, with Paul and he delivered with Job and he'll deliver with us as well. And so these guys all expected Paul to swell up and die. I mean, I don't know. They're just like, it's like movie time, you know, for the Maltese, you know. I mean, they're very benevolent, but it's like the guy got bitten, he deserves to die. Now, let's watch it happen, you know. And they're waiting for him to swell up and croak. Uh, you know, that, it's not very pleasant. Probably shouldn't even talk like that. Okay, moving on. But here's the thing is that they changed their minds when they didn't see him die. And this is the fickleness of man. At first they thought the gods were, you know, against him and now they say he is a god. So he went from punishment from the gods to being one of the gods in the plethora of, of Greek mythology. And, uh, you know, it's quite a shocking uh, uh, transition that Paul was in. And I guess the thing I thought to myself when I was going through this text is why, why was this even included? Have you ever kind of wondered why? What's a snake story? What's this, why is it even there? There's so many other stories that we don't have 
through the 40 years that the book of Acts covers, why would we have this one? Well, I want to suggest several reasons for you. Uh, the first is that it was, an, it was an act of vindication by God. We're going to talk about this in a minute, but Paul had already been vindicated no, no fewer than three times by Claudius, by Felix, actually four times, by Claudius, by Felix, by Festus, and also by King Agrippa. So four Roman officials had all exonerated him and said he had done nothing and was innocent of any crime deserving imprisonment, much less uh, death. And now God puts his exclamation point on it and he rescues them in a Greek, in a Greek mindset from a shipwreck, which would indicate to a Greek that he was innocent. And then he gets bitten by a, by a highly poisonous serpent that, you know, death was fairly rapid. And he survives that, which is another indication of the, the innocence of Paul, that, that God himself was ratifying this man's innocence before the Maltese people. I think another thing is that it confirmed and affirmed Paul's authority as an apostle because in, in 2 Corinthians 12.12, 12, uh, the Bible tells us that these things mark an apostle and one of those things is miraculous healings. I think another possibility, uh, and certainly I believe, even though the text doesn't say so, I think Paul preached a sermon right after this. I mean, you'd have everybody's attention. I mean, talking about a great illustration about sin and, and its, its capacity to bite and to take a man's life and how God can redeem, this was that moment. And so even though the text doesn't tell us this, I can only assume that Paul was looking for any opportunity to preach the gospel. And this was like a, just the, the barn door flew open in this, in this particular situation, and he preached the gospel. Well, the next thing that we find out is that there's a, there's a particular man who was the chief official of the island named Publius. His, his name actually means popular. And there's a pretty good reason why this guy, <laughs> that's a great name for this guy, because he was the leader of this kind, benevolent island. So it speaks very highly of his leadership that this island has this kind of an attitude. And he opens his home, opens his estate, demonstrated hospitality. I mean, ladies, just imagine that your husband brings home 276 friends from work without letting you know. And, and, they're, and they're a mess. And let's say they're not from work, but he just, you know, the cruise ship down at, at Now Willy Willy sunk. Let's say the super ferry sunk. Oh, God forbid I even mentioned the super ferry. But, but let's say the super ferry went down and it wasn't a full load and there's only 276 and no one would take them home. And you had such a benevolent heart and you brought them home and they were just a mess. They're wet. They don't have any clothes. Everything went glug glug to the bottom. And uh, no one was going to take care of them. And you ferried them up to the house and you got your friends to ferry them up there. And you knocked on the door and say, honey, I got a surprise for you and you won't unload 276 guys, you've got to feed them, you have to house them, you have to have bedding for them, you've got to provide for these guys, not for a meal, not for a night, but for three days, Publius served these guys. This is amazing. This guy's not even a Christian. But he has this, this heart of benevolence. But what makes this this man's story even re more remarkable is his own father was sick with dysentery and a fever. It's a gastric intestinal disease. It's actually called, they had a name for it, believe it or not, Malta fever. And it was from a microbe in the goat's milk on Malta. They had a real problem for a couple of hundred years that they had trouble eradicating this problem. And so Malta fever was a really common problem and it was often deadly. So here Publius, his family, granted he had servants and estate. He was not a poor man, but nonetheless he had his attention on his own father who was at, you know, death's door. And he could have easily thought to himself, man, I got my own problems. Somebody else has got to step up, you know? But again, here we've got Publius 
demonstrating the same giving heart. And in the midst of this, he takes care of all of these people while his own father is suffering. Here, here's the point I want to make briefly. Paul and Publius had a lot in common. They were coming from completely different experiences. Paul was a Jew. This man was a Roman. Paul was a prisoner. This man was a, a governor of the island. You know, Paul had nothing. This man had an estate and all kinds of things. But both of these men were marked by a commonality. And it was simply this, that in the very midst of their crisis, they served other people. Isn't that interesting? That both of these men, facing an enormous personal crisis, served other people in the midst of that crisis. This is God. This is the Christian lifestyle. You know, if you or myself, if we only serve God when we're not in crisis, that, that just like shoots about 80% of our life out the door, right? If we can only serve people when everything is good and when everything is, is how we need it and we've got the sleep we need and the extra material goods that we need and we've got a little fat bank account and, uh, you know, all in our family realm of influence is all copacetic and it's like everything is how we need it. At that moment, if we can serve, you're only going to be serving people about maybe 10 or 15% of your life. The, the example of these men is enormous and I wanna, I, I, I'm parking on it here just for a minute because I want to drive home the point strongly is that it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Service is the call of the Christian. We should be serving people in the community. We should be looking for opportunity to give ourselves away. We need to be looking for opportunity to share the gospel. We need to be caring for and comforting others even as we are suffering, even as we are struggling, even when we don't know what to do next in our own life. Our hearts need to be completely opened up for the work of God to minister to other people. The thing I want to suggest to you with the Apostle Paul is that it wasn't just like, okay, I'll sacrifice. It was that these were opportunities that God brought to him. He didn't see these challenges in his life as obstacles. Instead, he saw them as opportunities. He saw them as opportunities that God would open up. He, he gets to serve all these guys on the boat, probably led a lot of them to Christ. They get to the beach and, and uh, he gets to share with the Maltese after he shakes the the, the serpent off his hand. He's not crying, you know. He's not bemoaning, where is God? How come he's not loving me? He must not be hearing my prayer. He just thinks, wow, this is a great opportunity. I just got bit by a snake. Lord, let me live so I can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you following how this goes? You can live as a victim in your life and kind of bemoan that God's not taking care of you. Or you can say, wow, in the midst of the suffering, what an opportunity to bring glory to God. How can God you use this, the circumstance I'm in that I don't even know how I'm going to get out of? I don't even know what the outcome is going to be. But God, bring it on. Let me be used by you for your glory. The heart of Paul and even the heart of Publius. Well, Paul, Paul sees the heart of this, this, this leader on the island, this chief official. And, and the chief official, just kind of in passing, probably mentions about his father. And Paul says, I want to see the guy. So Paul went to go see him right away. He placed hands on him and healed him. Placing of hands is nothing. There's nothing magical about it, but it's just identifying with the person. It's saying we're compassionate. We love you. We care about you. But it's also an obedience to James chapter 5 that said if anyone is sick, bring the elders of the church, have them anoint you with oil, pray over you, and the sick person will be made well and his sins will be forgiven. And so Paul is just putting into practice what Jesus had commanded them to do and the man was cured. Well, you know what happened next, because we already read it. 
is the whole island was like all the, all the sick, the lame, the, the coughing, the hacking, uh, the people with all kinds of maladies and open sores and wounds and damage and broken bones, they're at the door. The question is, I, I thought about this, how did they find out? How did they find out? Well, we're not told in the text. It could be that they just word of mouth spread. Publius's father was healed, you know? But I doubt if all these people would suddenly feel uh, free to just storm this guy's estate. I'm going to make a suggestion, and it's just speculative, but I'm going to suggest to you that Publius, the kind of heart he's already expressing for these prisoners who, you know, they, they could be the kind of guys that you'd say, I'm not, I'm not going to deal with them. They're certainly not coming to my house. I've got kids here. I've got a family here, you know. I don't want to get it ripped off. But, but, but because he had such a heart, my guess is, is that when he saw this, he said to Paul, wow, can you do this twice? How about 300 times? How about 1,000 times? Paul says, I'll pray for as many people as you want. I believe Publius sent out messengers and went around and had criers go through the towns and said, come to the estate of Publius and be healed. The whole island, every sick person on the island got cured. I mean, this is just out crazy, outrageous that this would happen. And what do you think Paul did when all these things occurred? I, 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 in my mind's eye, I imagine him saying, yeah, I got the touch. <laughs> Sucking up the praise. Of course not. He preached the gospel. He preached the gospel to the Maltese. And it became a, a, a launching point for the explanation of the gospel. Do you think the Maltese listened to him and his message? You bet they did. And I believe many of these men and women were saved. Well, the people of Malta were so blown away, they honored Paul and all the men. They furnished them with all the supplies they needed, and they sent them on their way to Rome. I want to I take just a minute to, to say just a couple of comments about this at this point in the text. The first thing I want to say is that every challenge that Paul faced was an opportunity to advance the kingdom of God. I want to challenge you this morning I won't ask for a show of hands, but I bet a good portion of you have some sort of trouble you're facing right now, some anxiety, some fear, something you're not sure how it's going to turn out. Maybe not real big, but some of you got some enormous things you're dealing with. Some of you are in crisis right now. But all of us at some level, we're either coming out of a problem or just getting a very brief rest from a problem and we're recovering or we're going into one. That's just the way life is. And I want to say to you, if you choose to live a crippled life by focusing in on what, what's happening and on the, the heartache and the suffering and the challenge, you're going to be missing one of the biggest blessings that come with crisis. And it's not just personal growth, but in the midst of crisis, God opens up doors of opportunity. But if, but if I'm myopic, if I'm moaning, if I'm grumbling, if I'm, if I'm in a self-pity party, I'm not going to see what God wants to do. And I will miss out. Will God still get me through it? Yes, he will. And he'll get you through the problems you're facing too. But the question is, will you experience these abundant blessings? I mean, look at what happened with Paul. He's probably led most of the people on this ship to Christ. He's led Publius and his family to Christ. And I'm making some assumptions here, so forgive me. And I believe he's preached the gospel to the Maltese on the island. And I believe many of them came to Christ. And, and he would have missed that if he was sitting there by the fire saying, I'm not getting up. I'm tired of serving. I'm not doing one thing. All these guys that dragged me out here, an innocent man, let them do the work. 
Do you see how this all works? But because he served, because he had God's heart, some remarkable things took place. Well, fast forwarding to verse 11 and 14 through 14, uh, they make their way to Rome. And uh, I want to back up just for a minute because I was thinking about this. I was thinking about the blessing of Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. You remember when God gave him the blessing and he says, through you, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through one man, through one man's faith, the nations would be blessed. And I thought about Paul, and I kind of mentioned this last week. But through one man, and because of one man, 275 other men were saved and were graciously given to Paul because he prayed for them. One man saved 275 men in one uh, shipwreck. What about the sickness? Because of one man's relationship with God, one man's faith, a whole island was cured and the gospel was preached. Because of one man, 275 other men, just because they were with Paul, had all the provisions they needed generously provided because of one man, one loving kind, aloha-filled, spirit-filled man who didn't focus on his problems but focused on the opportunities in the midst of his crisis and God met him in fabulous, fantastic, fruitful ways. One man. I want to challenge you again with this. I talked to you about it last week. One man, one woman in the midst of crisis serving the Lord, you will never even fathom the possibilities until you begin walking in the power of God and remember that your life is not about you anymore, but it's about the kingdom of God and his eternal purposes. And yield yourself to the uh, opportunities that God puts in front of you to share, to preach, and to be a blessing, a sphere of influence with all the people that are kind of riding on your ship, uh, so to speak, as, as they were riding with Paul. I see this in you. I see so many of you impacting so many people on this island. You're touching lives everywhere. I praise God for you. You're, you're an inspiration, not just to me, but to the church, to the people here, to the people in the community. One man, one woman, making enormous differences. Well, in verses 11 through 14, the, the, uh, the Jews in Rome, some of the believers heard that Paul was coming. And uh, Paul had actually written his letter to the Romans three years before. He'd never met them, wrote a letter to them to encourage this church that he'd heard about. And in, in actually in the first opening verses of chapter 1 of Romans, he says, I can hardly wait to see you guys. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you so that you and I together may be mutually encouraged in our faith. And so these guys travel uh, from the Forum of Appius and three taverns, which are respectively about 40 and 50 miles away each, and they come and they see Paul, and Paul was prompted to give thanksgiving and also to be encouraged by these guys prompted to thanksgiving and encouragement. And the thing I just want to just say briefly on this is that this is really how every one of us should leave people that we've encountered as believers. When we encounter people as believers, this is what should be in the heart of people. I thank you, Jesus. And I'm so encouraged. That's what should happen when we are in people's presence. That doesn't happen if we don't care about people. That happens when we're longing for people, when we're praying for people, when we're loving people, when our eyes aren't fixed on all the problems. I don't even want to think about all the problems I got. You know? Aren't you like that sometimes? I have problems, but I don't want to concentrate on that. I don't want that to be my life. I've got to take care of them. I've got to do the right thing. I've got to obey God. 
But I don't want that to be my life because if that was my life, I'd never be able to serve. And so we find that, that uh, Paul is, is serving, and, but he's also being blessed and the very presence of these believers coming to him prompted and welled up in him a thankful heart to God and he was encouraged. Even the apostle Paul needs encouragement. You know, there are people here that need encouragement and they need you this morning to take some time after the service and not rush away, but to ask, how can I pray for you? How can I be a blessing to you? What's God doing in your life? I want you to leave this place encouraged and thankful to God. That's the kind of heart that these, uh, these brothers had that came to, to see Paul. We're told in verse 16 that he was permitted to live by himself. Highly unusual, but it's the character of Paul and the favor of God. And uh, three days later, we're told in verse 17 that he invited the Jews that were living there in Jerusalem uh, so that he could have a talk with them. And I'm blown away that he calls them brothers. I'm not sure I would be quite that gracious. Remember, he's been imprisoned, falsely accused, beaten, shackled, thrown on a ship, shipwrecked, bitten by a serpent, and now, you know, he's going before more Jewish brothers. These aren't Christians. These are Jews that have not yet received Christ. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I, have you ever been embarrassed about your race? Is it only me? You know, I'm Filipino, so sometimes when, when, when no, I'm, I'm Howley. Okay, so I got a lot of other things in me, but let's, let's just pretend for, the, uh, for my point that I'm completely Howley and not all the other things that I, you all know I am. Okay, so, so I'm Howley. You know, sometimes when I read in the paper or I see things happen on the island, I'm just like, oh, no, please don't do that. You know, that's not the heart of God, and it's certainly not what I want Caucasians to be represented doing. Have you ever felt that way about your own race? It's like, oh, oh, it's going to make us all look bad, you know? Everyone's going to think that because you're that way that we're all like that. And, and here the apostle Paul, he's like, he gets hammered every time he gets around the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders. And, but he gets into this situation, and if I were him, I'd be like, man, I just, you know, I'm up, I'm up to here with you. I'm not meeting with you. I don't want to talk to you. Every time I talk to you Jewish leaders, you just rip me apart. You try to throw me in prison. You try to get me killed. I'm done. No, he doesn't. He comes and he calls them my brothers. Is that grace or what? I need more of that. I need a lot more of that. The Bible tells us that when you give an answer to someone in 1 Peter 3, that you need to do it with gentleness and respect, honoring even those that are against you. Well, he presented his defense saying that he's done nothing against the Jewish customs. He was found innocent by all these Roman officials that we've already talked about. And basically his vindication had come from God. And he identified the true reason for his imprisonment. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've talked about this before, but the resurrection is the central message of the gospel. The resurrection is the central message of Christ, the central message of the apostles. And not surprisingly, because of that, it was the central attack point of those that were against Christ. And in this particular case, it happened to be the Jewish leaders. We've often thought that the cross was the central piece of the gospel. But not alone. It's the resurrection. It's the resurrection that, that Satan hates. He doesn't mind the cross. He doesn't mind a dead Jesus on the cross. What kills him is the resurrection. The resurrection is what gives us power to live the Christian life. The resurrection is what enabled the Holy Spirit to come. The resurrection is what gives us the, uh, the new life and the promise of eternal life. Without the resurrection, none of the rest of it matters, not even Christ on the cross. It's the resurrection that's the centerpiece of the gospel. And because of that, it's the resurrection that Paul says 
as the reason for his chains. Well, they give him feedback and say, we, don't, we haven't heard anything negative about you. We've heard talk to get against this sect, but we really don't know anything else. We'd like to meet with you again. They come in even greater numbers to this place he's staying. Now, mind you, there's, there's a guard there. Just, I don't know how many people, hundreds possibly, are, are, are gathered around to hear Paul as he explained and declared the kingdom of God from morning to evening. The kingdom of God, what is it? It's the realm of the rule and reign of God Almighty. It's not a place necessarily. It's a realm. The realm is wherever God rules. Wherever God reigns is the kingdom of God. Do you remember Jesus' words when he was talking about the kingdom and they were basically saying, where is it? And he said, it's not here or there. The kingdom of God is where? It's within you. The kingdom of God is within you. But the kingdom of God is, is not only within you, it's in now in our, in our uh, particular time frame that we're living in, the kingdom of God is in you. You are a kingdom of priests of the Most High God and the kingdom of God, his eternal presence is living in you. This church is the place of the kingdom of God, not the building, but you, the people, being built up into a holy temple to offer sacrifices and praise to a holy, mighty God. But the future will be different because not only are you a kingdom, and representative of that kingdom, but the day is going to come where God is going to make all things right and he will create a new heaven and a new earth and this will be the kingdom and it will be the realm and the reign of Christ will be over the entire globe and over the whole universe and I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait for it to happen. I'm kind of jealous of Kathy Lamb this morning because she's already experiencing a foretaste of that in the presence of God. Well, He's trying to convince them about Jesus from the law and the prophets, the very same thing that Jesus did on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. But the response was mixed. Some people immediately embraced the message. But then Dr. Luke says some would not believe. Doesn't mean that they didn't comprehend it. Doesn't mean that they weren't uh, persuaded. Doesn't mean that they weren't intellectually convinced. It means that they rejected it. It means that they understood it and still rejected it. That's one of the things that you have to be prepared for and I have to be prepared for. Although I see a very different thing happening on this island right now with the tremendous openness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there will be those that will reject the message. And this is why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 2 that we are to God an aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So wherever we go, we bring a fragrance of Jesus. The people that respond, hear it, smell it, perceive it, the people that reject it perceive it as well. To the ones who are, uh, to certain ones, it's a smell of death. In other words, it brings no life to them at all because they reject it. And to others, a fragrance of life. And so Paul sees this kind of in-your-face rejection of this message that he spent all day explaining. And then he quotes to them kind of a, a meeting-ending verdict from Isaiah chapter 6. And by the way, this is quoted by Jesus in all four Gospels under the very similar circumstances. When the message was proclaimed, the Jews rejected it. And then Jesus would give this prophecy, basically saying they were ignorant, they were without perception, they were hard-hearted, they were deaf, they were willfully blind, and they were going to be temporarily passed over in favor of the Gentiles, that the Gentiles might come in. And I, I just want to clarify this for a moment because it almost makes it sound in certain texts like Jesus is saying, I'm, I want you to be hard-hearted. I want you to be deaf. I want you to be blind so that you can't hear it. 
That's not, that's not an accurate interpretation. On every case that this particular prophecy is given, it's always given after the message is fully proclaimed, people accept it, and then there's a crowd that reject it, and that message is for those that reject it. And what Jesus is essentially saying through the prophet Isaiah is the result of rejecting me is that though you may see physically, you will be blind spiritually. Though you can hear physically, you will be deaf. Though you can perceive certain things in this life in a tangible physical realm, you will be ignorant of the response and the purposes of God for your life. In other words, you will be lost. It's only those that respond to the gospel that will be able to enter into that spiritual realm of receiving, believing, hearing, understanding for the first time in their life. And so Jesus says, it's this hardness of heart that will keep you from entering the kingdom of God. So ultimately, he's really rebuking him for this hard-heartedness. It's a very pointed message, but it's as applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago or even in the days of Paul. Now, there's an interesting verse here, and some of you notice this if you have a King James translation that I didn't read verse 29, and some of you thought, oops. I mean, I, I made a couple of mistakes in reading the text anyway, and you thought, oh, well, he just uh, skipped a verse, you know? Well, actually, I didn't skip a verse uh, because... Uh, the newer translations, uh, they, they actually don't have verse 29. The older uh, manuscripts that we've got now, and some of them coming all the way back from um, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and earlier texts that we've got that are giving us more confirmation about, uh, about these events in the Bible, the earlier manuscripts actually don't include verse 29. Uh, verse 29, by the way, says, and we know, uh, let's see, that uh, when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Well, that's nothing except what verse 25 said. So there's nothing lost here, but I'm just kind of informing you that because of the older manuscripts, the newer translations uh, that refer to those old, older manuscripts don't have verse 29. Um, going on to verse 30, we find that Paul stayed in Rome uh, for two years in his own rented house. And, um, you know, again, I think, what a waste of this guy's life. What a waste of his life. But I want to tell you that there were some reasons that he was there for two years. One is the obvious, is bureaucratic red tape and cowardice of the Romes, Romans to actually set this innocent man free. But I think a second reason that we can examine in, in, you know, after the fact is that Paul was having an enormous impact in Rome for two years, unhindered, able to preach the gospel. And he had people coming to him all the time uh, for that kind of interaction with them. But the third thing that we are blessed by as New Testament believers is that it was in Rome where God finally got Paul to slow down enough to write some of this stuff down. And in that context, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Titus, and 1 Timothy were written during this two-year period. I thank God for these books. They give us so much instruction, so much courage, so much information about who God is and who we are to be. And all these things happened in the midst of his suffering. And I want to say just one more comment on this briefly. God will never waste your suffering if you yield yourself to him. God will never waste your suffering if you surrender your heart to him. A lot of us, and I include myself in this, have suffered and reaped very little benefit from it because we were just kind of, you know, absorbed with ourselves. Poor me. God doesn't love me. He must not care. I must have done something wrong. Not necessarily so. Certainly not for Paul. But nothing was wasted with God, so even this imprisonment became a rich treasure for the church. 
for the millennia that would follow. And we are still reaping the benefit of this two-year incarceration that he experienced. And I want to suggest to you that even as it says in Romans 8.28, that we know that in all things God works for the good of those that love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? To serve right in the midst of our crisis. Not to become self-absorbed, not to become, you know, uh, put ourselves in a self-pity mode, not to drain everyone around us all the time, sucking life and energy from them, but to be people that in the midst of our crisis trust the Lord and continue to serve. And because of that, God redeemed this time and did amazing things through it. Well, the Bible tells us that he welcomed all who came to see him. One of those was Onesimus, this runaway slave that we hear about in, in Philemon. Paul ministered to him there. He spoke without uh, hindrance and boldly. He preached the gospel of the kingdom of God and he taught about Jesus Christ. In Philippians, he kind of summarizes the value of this time. Listen to Paul's words in, in um, actually in writing during his time in this incarceration. While he's, being in, while he's incarcerated, he writes to the Philippian church and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Do you see his heart? He's not worried about himself. He's not worried about the verdict. He's not worried about the outcome. He's worried about the kingdom of God and the advancement of the gospel. He says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Isn't that great? I love this. Because of my chains, many of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. In other words, he's being an example in the midst of his crisis. And people are following his example. In fact, they're not just following him. They are inspired by him. They want to be like him. And they want to follow in his footsteps as he follows Christ. This uh, chapter ends fairly abruptly. It's like, you know, it's like a, a movie that, have you ever watched a movie on a plane? And it's like, you can pick your movies now and everything if the airline is still flying. But, you know, you, you, get on the, you get on the plane and you can pick your movie and everything. And I rem- I've been on a couple of flights and I'm watching this movie and it's just like a suspense, you know, you know and, the, and the, the thing, they put up your tray, table trays, and, you know, they're starting to close everything. And I'm, no! You know, and, and I'm sitting there. You can get the thing, a little clue, is that I, even after they turn off the movies on the movie thing, if you wait just a minute and start hitting it again, it'll go back on. I'm just a little clue. You can watch for another five minutes or so while they're taxing in. And so I'm sitting there watching this thing and it's like, and then it stops. It's like, ah, you know, I didn't get to see how it worked out. And I kind of feel that way in the book of Acts in chapter 28. It's just like, boop, you know, curtain comes down. Well, I can tell you historically just a few facts that will be helpful to you in, in looking at how this story actually ends. Because we have evidence that Paul did go before Caesar, was tried, was heard, and was released. And he spent the next three years ministering in all kinds of places. He went to Crete. He left Titus there in Crete. He went to Ephesus, even though he said he didn't think he'd ever be back. He went back to Ephesus. And many people think he went to Spain and preached the gospel in Spain. But about two years later, in 67 AD, he was rearrested by the Romans in Rome. And he spent the next few months on death row in the Mamertine prison, which was a a hellhole, in darkness in a dank dungeon. It was nothing like his rented house uh, that he had previously. And and we know historically that he writes these letters to uh, 2 Timothy is written there, and he basically is just saying, I don't have anybody. Everybody's left me. I'm, I'm cold, I'm alone, and I'm toward the end of my fight. This battle is almost won. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And now awaiting me is this glorious presence of God. 
and it's waiting for us too. We're almost home. But historically, we're told that one early spring morning, he was led out to the uh, out beyond the wall of Rome, and he knelt before the executioner, and the sword flashed in the morning sun, and his head was cut off, and he was martyred for Christ. And I think, in a sense, what a tragedy. But I think, what a glorious reunion that in that split second, this is my mind's eye, what I envisioned. (laughs) I just envision him being embraced by Christ and Christ just not letting go for a while, you know. This is just me, I don't know. Maybe that's what I want when I get to heaven. Maybe that's what we all want. But I envision the Apostle Paul just being this great man that did that just was hugging every, everybody else and supporting everyone else and serving everyone else. His entire Christian life was served by Christ in that moment. And Christ embraced him. And after a long time of just holding this man that had served and sacrificed and suffered and been wounded and been misunderstood and been harmed by so many people, even his own people, that Jesus said, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness. And all that had happened before, all that he'd been through seemed like nothing as he entered the presence of Christ. And that, my friends, is our destiny as we walk with Jesus. We're going to suffer in this life. We're going to have hardship. We're going to be falsely accused. We'll be misunderstood. God is our vindicator. God will vindicate you. God will see you through. God will honor you. God will bless you. God will allow you to be a gracious blessing to all those that are in your sphere of influence if you have a heart of service. But in the midst of the crisis, you have to make a choice, and I have to make a choice to follow the example of Jesus Christ and to follow the example of Paul and to follow the example of a host of saints that have gone before us to serve and to love and to give and to sacrifice in the midst of our own crisis that others might know, that others might be delivered, that others might hear, that others might hear those same words, well done, good and faithful servant. I know we can't do it ourselves. I have no capacity to live this life in my own strength. But God can do in us what we can't do ourselves. And so this morning, I'm, I'm asking you to cry out to God. I'm asking you to pray to him And ask him for strength in the midst of your crisis to lift your eyes and to see the glory of your king and to be available to serve, to give, to be kind, to love, to sacrifice, to show the truest expression of friendship of a laid down life. That's the calling, that's the privilege, that's the honor, and that's the mark of a follower of Jesus Christ. You are already doing it. And my only comment is excel still more to the glory of God and to the impact of this island for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this time this morning and for your word. And I'm humbled and challenged by this message of the Apostle Paul by his life. And I'm asking for myself and for all of us here that you might turn our hearts towards you. Forgive us for grumbling and for complaining. God, for seeing it from such a narrow perspective of our 
comfort, our pleasure, our security being challenged. God, I pray that we'd have a heart like Paul, that wherever he was, same heart that Joseph had, same heart that Jesus had, same heart that so many of the saints in the past have had, didn't matter where they were, didn't matter what their circumstances, they had learned the secret of contentment and the secret of living the Christian life, not outside of suffering, but in the very midst of it. In fact, acknowledging that suffering actually highlights the glory of God. In our weakness, we are made strong. In our inability, your power is most greatly and beautifully magnified. So make your name great on this island through us, Lord, suffering at times, struggling at times, uncertain what to do at times, but always trusting you for our vindication, always looking to you with our eyes wide open, our ears wide open, our hearts wide open for the powerful work of Christ in our life. 